We're going to be in the third chapter, and that'll be in verse 18. Verse 18. I don't know what page it is on the Pew Bibles. We'll get that. All right. And Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Actually, I want to go back a little. Again, each one of these sermons that I do in Colossians, I, I always take a chunk of text before, and uh, I actually read the text for our sermon. And I do that because in expositional preaching, we want to see the full context of what's going on. Uh, not just taking text out of context, but seeing it in the fuller uh, uh, life of what, what is being written, what's being communicated. Uh, so I'm going to begin in verse 12. And our text is from 18 to 21 today, so keep that in mind. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now our text, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you once again as a church community, as your body. And we come here today, O Lord, with hearts prepared to hear from you, to receive from you. Give us tenderness and humility that we may perceive your word and that we may hear it and that we may obey it. Father, we pray that uh, you would make your presence known here today, that we would sense your holy presence, that we would be lifted up, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened today. O Lord, we pray, Father, that you would exalt yourself and you would exalt, O Lord, your word. And as we look to this message here describing the Christian household, O Lord, that we would seek to pattern and model our lives after what you instruct us to do. O Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Now, Lord, take control. Use me as a vessel of glory pray that my mind, my heart, and my lips may be acceptable in your sight, that you'd overshadow me and use me as a vessel of honor. I pray for every one of us here that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what is in your word, and that we may obey it according to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It is often said that the foundation of any society is the family unit. If the family life is healthy and good, society will be healthy and strong. But when family structure is unhealthy, 
society inevitably will crumble. And when we look at society today, one can't help to perceive that the nuclear family has been attacked from many angles. It is barely recognizable anymore in American culture, so much so that we have a television program called Modern Family, and it gives us all the different varieties of dysfunctional families that exist in our culture today. And there was nothing new, because when I grew up, we watched a show called Married with Children, and the typical Al and Peg Bundy, which were the dysfunctional family, and the list goes on and on. Art imitates culture, and culture imitates art. But at the bottom line, it's a reflection of what's going on in our society. And what we have seen overall in the last few years, and in decades rather, is a collapse of the family, the nuclear family. Families have been ripped apart by divorce. We see that now families are redefined by two moms, two dads, sometimes multiple partners. Roles are reversed. Children are rebellious and wicked. And overall, we see disorder and chaos and dysfunction. Not only do we see disorder and dysfunction in the home, but we see disorder and dysfunction inevitably in society. And so when you look around you and things are just haywire and crazy and you see people acting off the rails, it's because something has gone wrong at the very basic level, and that is the home life. Now, with that said, we understand that God is very concerned with the family, and that is because the way God created humanity, when God created the world, the first man and the first woman, God created the first family. It was a pattern in his design to reflect his glory. It is through the family that the image of God in its wholeness is, is imaged to the world. And so if the family life is distorted, the image of God is distorted. And so God is very concerned with the family, and therefore his redemptive purpose through Christ is to restore the family to what it was intended to be. When you go back to Genesis 3.16, we're reminded of how dysfunction entered this fallen world, and it was told that uh, in the curse of sin, Eve was told, your desire will be for your husband, Genesis 3.16, and he will rule over you. Now, to understand the English translation of the Hebrew there, the word teshukwa, uh, which is used to describe Eve's desire for her husband, wasn't a, a desire to, to be in love and a desire to, uh, uh, to be in romantic. The desire there is actually the desire to conquer or control. And so we see that immediately into the, the order of creation is the wife's desire to conquer or control her husband. And in, inversely, the husband now rules over, or as the Hebrew there is translated, is harsh and is cruel. And so what you see in sinful humanity is you have harsh, cruel husbands, and you have conquering, controlling wives. And that brings conflict and disorder. And shortly after, Cain and Abel, the two first children of the world, resulting conflict and Cain kills his brother Abel we see the first murder so we see that sin comes to destroy and therefore Satan is the author of all of this because remember in the garden Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect relationship a perfect marriage and had sin not into the picture they would have had endless bliss and an eternal life together but Satan entered the picture and the whole purpose of Satan is to usurp authority. If you look at the whole order of creation, God created Adam, and Adam was 
uh, subject to God. And then he created Eve as his helpmate. And she was submissive to her husband. And then he created the serpent who was the snake on the ground. And he was under the foot of the serpent. But clearly, as a result of Satan's sin and as Satan's rebellion against God, the serpent usurps Eve. Eve usurps the husband, and the husband usurps God. And so you have an inversion of the order of creation. The key for us today is understanding that only in Christ, only in Christ can we experience the redeemed family life. And only when Christ is in us can we enjoy the fruits of a godly home. The whole purpose of the Christian life is to restore and redeem. Christ, who is the fullness of God bodily, has filled the cosmos. He has filled us and empowered us to live a godly life. But more importantly, he empowers us to fulfill our roles in the household. Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. Now, we usually apply that biblically to building our church communities, but it's the very thing that applies also to our home life, to our families. If God is not building, and if we're not following his pattern and design for domestic life, we will not enjoy the blessing and success of God. You see, the clarion call here is to recognize that Christ is the Lord of the family. Christ is the Lord over the cosmos, and he is the Lord over our family. But he cannot be the Lord of our families if he is not Lord of our hearts. He cannot rule our homes if he cannot rule us. And so ultimately what we have to see here, and and in this passage that deals with the household from verse 18 to verse, uh, down to chapter 4 verse 1, Next week, we'll, we'll deal with a separate subject of masters and slaves, and that's a whole other ballgame. Six times the word Lord is used, kurios. And that's not by mistake. It's a reminder that every role and every person's uh, uh, involvement in the family must be subjected to the Lordship of Christ. Practically, this means that first and foremost, every member of the family must submit to Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is he who has assigned the roles of each family member. So if we do not like the roles he assigned, then we are rejecting his authority. We submit to his rule also by acknowledging our accountability to him. Our accountability is not to an individual, it's not to the church, but our our accountability is to Jesus Christ himself. We are accountable to the Lord. But what does that mean? It means this. That my responsibility to be obedient to God's call for my role is not contingent upon the other members of my family doing their jobs. So the husband can't say, I will be loving to my wife if she is submissive to me. The wife can't say, I will be submissive to my husband if, if, if he is loving to me. It is not contingent upon what others do. It is contingent upon our accountability to God. We are each individually responsible to the Lord himself on how we carry ourselves. And so no one will, no, in no way can we stand before God in judgment day because it'll be just like Adam. Adam, what does Adam say to God? Oh, the wife you gave me. God then was hearing none of it. 
We all have a responsibility to fulfill our roles as God has ordered. And so as believers, we have been renewed in the image of God and have been made members of a new society. We have a responsibility to contrast with the world in glaring distinction, the family unit, the way God describes it, as opposed to the way the world describes it. Let's begin today with examining the role of a wife in marriage. Role of wife in marriage. Very plainly, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. There's not much elaboration on this. It's a very simple command. And I think that we have to take it at face value. And I want to take note here that the text is not saying anything about women in the workplace. It's not saying anything about women in leadership. It's not saying anything about women in politics. It's talking about women in the domestic situation in their homes. What it's talking about is the family. Now, this word is a very dirty word for women. We call it the S word. The mere mention of it makes many women cringe. In fact, it was in the 2020 vice presidential debate when Mike Pence was asked the question, do you believe that wives should submit to their husbands? Well, that was very offensive to the, uh, those in the audience, and they, they lampooned him, and he was just the, 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 the mark of this, this, oh, this tyrannical, old-fashioned Christian worldview. But you would never see them ask a Muslim candidate, do you believe it's okay to beat your wives, which is in the Quran? Uh, that's not brought up. It's all designed a certain way. But let's just be realistic here. The word submit has often been used by tyrannical husbands as a license to uh, be abusive and to mistreat their wives. And so, and so clearly there's been a misunderstanding of the word submit and the misunderstanding of headship, and that has resulted in some, some ugly uh, ideas. And at the same time, we can't reduce or sanitize it uh, to mean something that it's not saying. And so what we have to understand is what does submit mean? What is the biblical understanding of it? And are there limitations to it? The first thing I want to say is submission does not mean inequality. When Paul is writing his letter, it was during a time of great inequality of women. And yet the New Testament stresses emphatically that men and women are equal. Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is no male, there is no female, there is no uh, slave, there is no free. We are all one in Christ. And so uh, clearly in the New Testament, it was, a, it was a radical shift from Judaism. I mean, in Judaism, women had no rights. Women were, were things. They were possessions of men. You know, the famous prayer in the synagogue was, God, thank you, you made me a male and not a female, a free man and not a slave, and a Jew and not a Gentile. And so it was looked down upon. But in, in Christ's ministry, we see that there are both men and women serving in, in Christ's ministry. There are women who, who travel with his entourage and his disciples. There are women involved in the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts. And, and clearly there is a different place where God wants to remind his people that men and women have uh, are equal image bearers of God and therefore have equal uh, uh, value and have equal worth and, and are equally human. And there's, a, there's an intrinsic importance to that, not just to the Jews who had a misconstrued view, but even in the Gentile world where it was no better. In Roman and Greek society, wives were simply seen as caretakers and childbearers, and the husband found his carnal pleasure in multiple lovers, and the wife would never see such thing. And so let me first clarify that submission never means inequality or inferiority. Perfect example of this is in Jesus' submission to the Father. 
In 1 Corinthians 11.3, we are told that we are to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. And so the correlation of a man's headship or a husband's headship over his wife is correlated to the headship of the father over the son. Is the father superior to the son? Is the son inferior to the father? No, they are both equally God. They're equal in glory. They're equal in power. They're equal in essence. The substance of the father and the substance of the son are one. We have one holy God in three persons. You cannot uh, 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 say that the son is inferior or lesser of a God or a demigod. The son is as much as God Almighty. In fact, whenever God... Uh, um, speaks to mankind or reveals himself in theophanies. They're always Christophanies. Any time you see God speaking in the Old Testament, that is not God the Father. No one has ever seen or heard the Father except the Son. And so whenever you see God speaking, whether he's thundering at the mountain, at Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments, or the angel of the Lord comes to declare his will, it is the Son. And it is that the Son in whom we, and all those who honor the Son, honor the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, we are told that when Christ comes back, it says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. And you see, that is because the Father and Son are sinless, and their unity is perfect. The Father and the Son do not have wills that conflict with each other, but their wills are one. So Jesus could say, I do not say anything apart from the Father tells me. I do not do anything apart from the Father tells me because the Father's will is the Son's will and vice versa. There's one will, one God. And that is exactly the oneness that God intends the husband and wife to share. That is exactly the oneness. And so the question is, why doesn't this oneness always manifest? And that is because unlike God the Father and God the Son, men and, men and women are sinners. And as a result of sin, we have selfish impulses and selfish wills, and those selfish wills will conflict and collide. And as a result, there will be disorder. And so therefore, we're told that the wife's role is to be the helpmate, the helper of her husband, to support him, to, to lift him up, to assist him in his leadership of the home. For wives, it's a call to yield and recognize the husband's God-given authority, when exercised in godliness, it's to follow their husband's lead, to seek his honor as unto the Lord. And notice that's exactly what it says here, as is fitting in the Lord. It is, it is not only fitting in the Lord for the wives to submit to their husbands, but it is fitting in the Lord for the husbands to lead their wives in godliness. So therefore, we have to understand that, that this idea of submission is not forced, it is not compelled, it is not something that is, is absolute obedience as is expected of children. But rather the word used here is hupatasso. It is a military term and it means the voluntary relinquishing of rights and yielding to the authority of another. It is voluntary. And it is, uh, it is used in the same word as a, as, a, as a soldier who yields and submits to those in the military. John MacArthur says this, the yielding to, or a good definition of submission is the yielding to and grateful acceptance of a husband's leadership. It's a voluntary and happy disposition to recognize and honor the husband's great God-given responsibility to lead the home. In essence, it's all about attitude. That's really what it's about. It's about attitude. 
Submission is a disposition of love and honor to our husbands and to recognize their role to help, that bear them up, to cooperate. You see, last time we spoke about, or, or in last week's sermon, we spoke about the difference of the spirit and the flesh. And when the flesh rules, we're gonna, it's going to be all selfish impulses and it's going to dominate with all kinds of conflict. But, but the spirit, when the spirit rules, there is peace, there is love, there is harmony. And so therefore we see that just as Genesis 3.16 says it's the wife's desire to conquer, control her husband, we have to understand that a godly woman restored in Christ seeks not to conquer, control, but to submit and yield because ultimately they're doing it unto Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 3-5 says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. I will say this, there is a limit to submission, and that is, wives, you should never submit to your husbands if they ask you to do something sinful. We are under no obligation to submit to anyone who asks us to do anything that violates our conscience and sin against God. Right? When, when, when the apostles were commanded by the Sanhedrin, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, it was Peter who said, who shall we obey, God or man? And so the ultimate thing we have to remember, and this is what I said from the very beginning, everybody in the household has to understand Ultimately, we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of our lives and he is the Lord of our homes. Secondly, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Husband, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now again, this is dealing, and I I really believe when Paul is writing this, he's thinking of Genesis 3.16 because both commands are the inverse of of the, the curse of sin. The woman goes from being controlling, conquering, to submissive and yielding, and the husband goes from domineering and harsh to loving and sacrificial. So two opposites, and we see how sin can rule. And so in this case, the husbands are told to love their wives, and this was very radical in the ancient world. It was unheard of. Yet God is reminding and calling husbands to their leadership role. Their headship role is, is not a headship of domineering, but a headship of love. It's the headship of Christ. And the model of male headship goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look in Ephesians chapter 5, which is the parallel passage that also describes the the household uh, ethics of of the Christian family, uh, says, husbands, love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and sanctifies her. And so the the standard's very high of love. The definition of love is very high. What kind of love? How do we love our wives' husbands? Well, it's very simple, with a sacrificial love. How did Jesus love the church? How does he love his bride? Jesus loves his his bride so much, it tells us in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. But moreover, Jesus laid his life down for his bride the church. He gave himself for her. He sacrificed. Sacrifice means giving of yourself. It must cost you something. And at that cost, you give to someone else expecting nothing in return. That's sacrificial love. 
It's agape love. It's unconditional love. And it's a love that could only come from God. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. See, Christ willingly went to the cross. He died in our place. It was voluntary. Just as the wife's submission is voluntary to her husband, the wife's love to his wife is voluntary. It is not compelled or constrained, but it is that that springs from a heart that desires to do so to the glory and honor of Christ. It means that we love our, lives in, what love our wives in such a way that we devote ourselves to, the wealth, to their welfare and to their good. It means we, as husbands, do not exist to be served, but to serve as our Lord modeled for us. Unfortunately, I think many husbands have the Archie Bunker model. Edith, get me a beer. And I think we fail to understand what the biblical mandate is for husbands. In some ways, where wives, I guess, will complain about the submission word, I think the husbands have the greater bulk of responsibility. The husbands have the greater burden to lean and to love in such a way as, as emulates Christ. It's not come easy. Which is why the only answer is dying to self. You see, no, co- no sacrifice comes without a, a cost. Christ paid the ultimate price for our salvation because he loved us. And when we truly love our wives, we'll be willing to pay that price. The Savior-style leadership of Christ is modeled for us also when the Lord talks to his disciples about how they lead the church. Let me demonstrate Matthew 20, 25 through 28. And Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be your slave. And even if the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is humility. At the basis of every relationship, whether it's a husband, a wife, whether it's relationships in the church, whether it's relationships with our parents, with any relationship context we have, Christ tells us to look to serve the interests of others and not ourselves. It's when we feel we must be served, we must be honored, I must have the preeminence, that is when problems start. Because when we insist that we deserve this, that, and the other, and underscore it all, and, and what about me, and what about me, and what about me, we lose focus of what it's really about. Ultimately, headship is not about selfish and self-seeking leadership. It carries the responsibility to care for, protect, and seek what's best for our families. Let me say this, marriage is a two-way street. Two people become one. You know what that means? You're no longer your own. You belong to something greater. It's a family unit. And when you become one of something, you give up part of yourself. When you become a member of a church, you're not no longer just an individual wandering aimlessly through life. You're part of a church. You're accountable to that church. And it's the same way in marriage. You're no longer your own. You're not two separate people. You become one, and you strive to become one. In a perfect world, husbands would always love their wives as Christ loves the church, and wives would submit to their husbands in a perfect world the way Christ 
or the way the church submits to Christ. But we do not live in a perfect world, do we? We live in a broken and sinful world. And in everyday life, there's going to be challenges through marriage. And the biggest threat to any healthy and stable marriage is self. I want you to think about this. A wife's submission to her husband, what does it call her to do? Die to self. It means yielding her rights to her husband. It, it, it means the acquiescence to another. And in the same way, a husband's call to love his wife as Christ loves the church calls him to do what? Die to self. And so when you have two people who are dying to self, who are mortifying sin, who are mortifying the flesh, who are following everything that came in Colossians prior to, you'll have harmony. But when self rules, you will have disharmony. When one person is selfish and the other selfless, it becomes a one-way street. Eventually someone's going to give out. When two people are selfish, it cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. But when two people die to self and accept our God-given roles, we'll see and experience the peace, success, and harmony of the whole. Very simple advice I want to give to husbands and wives today. Very simple advice. Wives, if you are submissive to your husbands, you will make it easier for them to love you. Husbands, if you are loving to your wives and you're not harsh and cruel, you will make it easier for them to be submissive to you. It's that simple. Yet, as sinners, we don't always get it, do we? And so what we have to understand here is ultimately in Christ and the power of him filling our lives, filling our marriages, filling our homes, we can see the redemptive purpose of God in restoring the family unit and therefore thus restoring society. Now let's look at the third point, and that is children. Because there are other members of the household and that are, there are children in the household. And again, the word instructs us not only have children are to accept their role, but parents as well. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, and fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, children, children, I don't care how old you are, I don't care if you're 5 or 25. If you live under your parents' roof and you live with your parents and you're under their household, obey your parents. It pleases God. It's the one commandment that's given that with it is attached the promise of life. Disobedience leads to death. Rebellion against one's parents is folly and leads to destruction. God has placed parents in the home for the purpose of teaching and admonishing children in the ways of goodness and godliness. We're told to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord or the fear and discipline of the Lord. It is our role as godly parents to instruct our children, to teach them, not just what in word, but in deed. So much of parenting is caught, not taught. Not only that, but we are encouraged to discipline them. For those who spare the rod spoil the child. The rod drives out folly out of the child. But children, obey your parents in all things. That's comprehensive, children. When you don't obey your parents in all things, you are dishonoring God. Because there is no authority in heaven that's given except it's from God. 
Rebellion against parental authority is ultimately rebellion against God himself. And when we rebel against God, we cannot expect his blessing. But in this, because as parents, we are likewise given the same exhortation about not being overbearing and not being so harsh with our kids that we provoke them to wrath. You see, the tendency, and I find this especially within Christian households, is that we tend to be overbearing, over-controlling, and overly strict. Recently, I spoke to a friend of mine out of state, and he was telling me about a pastor. This pastor raised four children in a church, very reformed, very, very reformed church. All four kids homeschooled. All four kids the, the, the model of perfection in the church. The parents followed the T, the fear and discipline of the Lord. All four children are in rebellion against God. None of them are saved. They're all in the world. They've all left the church. And so my friend who spoke to this pastor friend of his, the pastor got so discouraged, he quit the ministry. He gave up. He threw in the towel and left the ministry. And so, and so, my friend spoke to one of the kids, a girl who he's very close with. He's like a grandfather to the girl. And he asked the girl, what, what happened? What went wrong? It seemed like your parents did everything right. Where did, what, what went wrong that you went and followed the way of the world? He said, my parents were just too strict. They made it so unreasonable, it drove me insane. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Just as husbands are not to be tyrannical authoritarians, parents also need to understand the gracious leadership of Christ with our children. The obedience our children must render no way excuses or justifies insensitivity, brutality, or overbearing authoritarianism. We're not called to crush their spirit. We're called to guide them. To provoke or to exasperate, as the book of Ephesians says, refers to the result of undue severity and exercising of discipline. And while we ought to be firm, we should also be tempered with the purity or motive of a loving spirit so that they are not discouraged. Our children should know we love them. This is crucial. Sam Storm says this, an overly obsessive and exacting posture in parenting leads to emotional and spiritual irritation in the child. An inflexible, judgmental, and demanding temperament creates despondency in a child's heart. Faced daily with this harshness, children will often give up, convinced that nothing they ever do will be quite good enough to please their parents. And this is something as I was studying, I thought, I need to learn. I need to apply. I mean, we all, all of this is for us. We need every bit of this. Right? So anybody sitting here, ha ha, pastor's talking to you today. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Pastor's talking to you. The spirit is talking to, take. we all have to take and own our own responsibility. Don't look at the failures of the other members of your household. Look at your own failures. Pastor's talking to this man in the pulpit today, too. John MacArthur, in a blog article that I found very impressive on me, wrote about seven ways as parents we can provoke our children to wrath or discourage them. And I want you guys to listen up. All parents, listen up. Number one, 
excessive punishment. As a parent, you should not be eager to punish. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in revelry and wrath. Neither should we. We shouldn't enjoy it. You often hear the expression, it hurts me more than it hurts you. A true loving parent, that's exactly the feeling. It's not an act of getting what you deserve, but it, it should be a loving and gracious act that it does hurt because we want to see our kids on the right path. Punishment should never be brutal or bullying. Parents always administer discipline with the good of the child in mind and never more than necessary. Secondly, inconsistent discipline. Inconsistent discipline. If you overlook an infraction three times but then punish the child severely the fourth time, they're going to get discouraged and they're going to be exasperated. Parental discipline must be consistent. It must be the same and it must be one of the main reasons that we, it is a full-time job. Parenting is not a part-time job. It's full-time, 24-7. And there's times as parents, we want to take a vacation and say, I just don't want to deal with it today. It's a full-time job. Amen? Thirdly, unkindness. Saying mean and hurtful things to our kids. Things you would never say to a stranger. That'll discourage our children. Favoritism. This was clearly seen how it worked out in the life of Jacob. He showed favoritism to Joseph. It tore his whole family apart. It destroyed the family. Joseph was, was brutal, almost murdered by his brothers. And he was a slave in, in Egypt for many years and suffered greatly. Of course, it was all part of the plan of God. But in Joseph's folly of exalting one brother among the rest, it created nothing but hardship for him. Jacob lived a miserable life. All those years that Joseph was gone, he thought he was dead. He lamented and mourned and grieved. Don't show favoritism. Try to treat each child equally and fairly. Five, being too permissive. Research from many different sources have shown if children are given too much autonomy, they feel insecure and unloved. No wonder. The scripture tells us that parents who leave their children to themselves with no consequences actually show contempt for their child. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. We ought not to leave children to ourselves. They're young. They don't, can't make decisions. I think it's absurd, even worse, when you hear of, now the new thing is, you have kids who are five, six years old, and they're saying, well, you could choose what gender you are. Are you kidding me? A five or six-year-old doesn't know their, their elbow from their foot. That's the way of the world today. Let kids choose. Let them do what they want. I was reading several years ago about a, a, the school district in, in Boston was letting kids choose the curriculum for the school district. Seriously? You leave kids to themselves, they're going to self-destruct. Parents love their kids, and if you love your kids, you're going to put structure and boundaries in their life. If you don't love your kids, you let them do whatever they want. Sometimes the kids see other kids in school and they say, oh, their parents let them do whatever they want. 
I think you're the bad guy. Well, maybe their parents don't really love their kids. Because if they love them, they wouldn't let them be running wild in the streets and having unlimited screen time to low hours of the night. That's not love. And one extreme is being too permissive. Another extreme is being overprotective and overbearing. Some parents are so scared of worldly influence that they fence them in, they suffocate them, and deny them any measure of freedom or trust. And so they become so sheltered. And I think this is the case with my friend out in Colorado. And all four kids went astray. I've seen it. You shelter kids so much, as soon as they turn 18, as soon as they go to college, it's like all hell broke loose. What happened? They were so good. It's a, it's a delicate balance. You don't want to provoke your children to such a point of frustration that you make them despair of any having any freedom and they cannot wait to the day that they have an ounce of freedom to do whatever they will. And then seventh, John MacArthur writes, is the pressure to achieve. The pressure to achieve. Our kids are under a lot of pressure in many different ways. I think as parents, sometimes we don't understand the stress that kids go through. I forgot what it was like to be a teenager. That was a long time ago. I have to admit. And so I have to be sensitive to understanding the pressure my children are under. It's the pressure of act, act. School is hard today. Any parent here can testify that, that what kids are doing in school today, I was doing in college. They're, it's advanced. It's hard. So add on that the pressure of academic performance, the pressure of athletics, the pressure of being good and godly and the pressure of peer pressure and all these pressures combined and then we add more pressure to it. We set standards that are so high sometimes uh, of achievement that we, we in a way set them up for failure. John MacArthur says this, plenty of parents arouse their children's anger through constant pressure to achieve. If you never praise your kids when they succeed but always drive them to do, to do more and better if you neglect to comfort and encourage them when they fail, or worst of all, if you force your children to try to fulfill goals you never accomplished, they will certainly resent it. He goes on to say, it's fine to encourage our children to excel. In fact, it's the natural, normal part of parenting, but don't forget to balance your desire to see them realize their full potential with a little patience and understanding, or you will provoke the bitterest kind of resentment. Maybe some of us as children were under that kind of pressure. It's not easy being a husband. It's not easy being a wife. It's not being a parent. It's not easy being a kid, is it? Because God sets this pattern for us, but we have our own sinful nature. But the good news is that through Christ, and only through Christ, can we fulfill our roles to the glory in honor of Christ. I want to say this, just as I told husbands, you'll make it easy for your wives to submit if you love them, and wives, you'll make it easy for your husbands to love you if you're submissive. Parents, you will make it easier for children to obey you if we're gentle and gracious. 
Let me conclude. Throughout Colossians, we have read of the Christ who fills the cosmos, the Christ who dwells in us, the hope of glory, Christ who is in us, the fullness of wisdom and knowledge, Christ in us, restoring the image of God, Christ in us, putting to death the old man, and in the same way, it is the fullness of Christ in us that allows us to follow this pattern of godly, familial relationships. I want to give you all an encouragement today. Some of you are here and you probably are saying, I have failed in this area. There are areas where I could do better. Let me just tell you something. We can always do better, and that's the point of being a Christian. It's not what you did in the past, it's what you do going forward. It's about seeking Christ. You want the solution to all of this? If you want to be a better husband, want to be a better father, want to be a better wife, want to be a better mother, want to be a better child, seek Christ with all your heart. The more you seek Christ, the more you are filled with him, the more you passionately pursue him, the more you deliberately make him the center and Lord of your life, this will fall into place. But if you do not have Christ as Lord over your heart and Lord over your house and Lord over your, your, your thoughts life and Lord over your will, there will be disorder. There will be harsh husbands, controlling wives, rebellious kids, and conflict will abound. I go back to verse 14. And above all, these put on love which binds everything together and perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that Father, in a world of seeming darkness, you have quickened us and enabled us through by your spirit to fulfill the pattern and design that you've given us. I pray for everyone here today for humble hearts. I pray that husbands would be more loving with their wives, including me. I pray that wives would be more submissive to their husbands, that children would be obedient to their parents, that parents would be gracious with their children. I pray, Father, that this will be done for your glory, for your honor, and that through the church, through the family, that your image would be born to the unbelieving world and they would see what you're like, God. Help us to remember that we have the responsibility to bear your image, to show the world the work of Christ, to show the world the redemptive purpose that you have given to the church. I pray we never forget it. May you be glorified in this time. In Christ's name, amen.